Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, October the 28th, 2022, almost November. And many of you know what's happening in November 2022. It's the great Miami Book Fair, uh, America's best book fair, best celebration of writers and new books. Um, and the guys there have been very kind to line me up with a number of very distinguished writers going to the book fair uh, between November the 13th and 20th. It's going to end on the 20th with a blockbuster series of panels. One of my uh, my guests today is actually speaking on the 20th. Um, earlier this week, I talked to David Sachs, another very good American writer. He has a new book out, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. And he's participating in that human world by actually physically going to Miami. Miami, of course, is a remarkable American city, a lot of energy, a lot of reinvention, um, wonderful beaches. Most of us want to go there. And my guest today, um, Maud Newton, had a, a really interesting piece in the New York Times magazine last week, uh, a piece about y'all, uh, the southern phrase. And she notes at the beginning uh, of the piece from last week, October the 18th in the Times, uh, growing up in Miami, I dreaded being told that I sounded like a hick. Um, many of you will know that Maud is also the author of Ancestor Trouble, and she's joining us from her home in Queens today. Maud, uh, congratulations on the new book, Ancestor Trouble. And I'm thrilled that you're going to be going um, to Miami on the 20th uh, to speak, the last day of the event. Will it feel like you're going home? I mean, you were... Uh, as you say, you grew up there. What? How, how did Miami shape Maud Newton, or perhaps more appropriately, how did Maud Newton shape Miami? Well, I don't know that I can claim to have shaped Miami, but I was definitely shaped by growing up there. As I write in that piece, and of course in a lot more detail in the book, I grew up in Miami um, after having moved at the age of two from Dallas. Uh, my father was raised in the Mississippi Delta and the M Mississippi Gulf Coast. My mother grew up in Texas and Dallas as well. So um, it was really interesting as a little toddler to go down there and suddenly be in a very different kind of environment. Um, my fellow speaker at the book fair, Imani Perry, has noted that Miami actually is a southern city in a lot of ways, um, but it's not really southern in the same sense as, say, the Deep South. It's funny, you mentioned you were born in Dallas because of your new fame, or maybe not so new fame, or perhaps notoriety. Everyone seems to be claiming you. The Dallas Morning News uh, headlines, uh, Dallas-born author Maud Newton. Do you think that being born in Dallas or growing up in Miami, what, what does that actually even mean? I mean, does it mean that you have some Dallas or Miami blood in you? 
I do think that I was really shaped by both of those places. I mean, Dallas, um, my Texan ancestors, the ones I knew, um, were fond of a tall tale that often turned out to be true. It was the sort of over-the-top story that seemed impossible, but was actually verifiably true. Um, you know, so, and the sort of, um, I don't know, the casual feel of Dallas, the sort of um, welcoming vibe of it, the slow speech. I was often told in Miami that I, that I spoke too slowly, uh, which I imagine all my years in New York City have remedied. Um, and Miami really did influence me in so many ways. I, I cannot imagine um, the, the person I would have been if I hadn't grown up there. I mean, I, you know, especially when I was in high school, I went to public school. I discovered um, the Miami Book Fair, actually, you know, as, as a young person. And um, Mitchell Kaplan's bookstore, which is so integrally involved in the book fair, Books and Books, was just a place of my heart um, as a young reader from a very sheltered background. Maud, you're, in, you're not just a writer, I guess it's true of all writers, but you're particularly interested in the English language and particularly in the American Southern English language, if that's the right way of putting it. That's why you've written this, this piece on y'all. Um, what's so important, do you think, about language in terms of genealogy? How intimately are these two things bound up with one another? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and not a question I've gotten before, actually. You know, because of my father's deep um, and rather extreme commitment to white supremacy, um, you know, to the notion that white people were really inherently superior to the notion that our ancestors were correct to enslave black people. Um, you know, I grew up with this um, collection of ideas and words from him um, that were really sort of counterbalanced as I write in that New York Times Magazine piece by Miami, which at the time was you know, uh, again, a city that is Southern in some senses that definitely has a lot of problems with inequality and discrimination, but at the same time is an incredibly diverse place, um, is incredibly rich with various kinds of culture. Um, you know, and actually the older I got there, the more sort of what was called Anglo culture in Miami was um, decentered, and that was a really interesting experience. I think, as a white person growing up in the United States, a white, non-Hispanic, non-Latino person, um, to grow up in this environment where my family was not in any way dominant. Uh, I mean, that is to say, obviously, the privileges that were afforded to me as a white person growing up in a middle-class family are undeniable. But at the same time, um, you know, that wasn't the, the prevailing 
vibe of the city. So just to explain, you, you've mentioned your father and um, the book is, uh, the, the, the subtitle of the book is A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. And the reckoning in many ways is about your father's racism and the fact that you're the product in a sense of a, a marriage of eugenics, your father married your mother to produce white children. Um, how much of this is an attempt in this book to find yourself, these kind of, I guess, memoirs, these searches are in a sense searching for the self. Although with you, I, I get the sense that you already knew yourself, that you, there was no lost mode before the book and then you wrote it and you found yourself. Yeah, again, such a good question. And so just to take a quick step back um, for viewers, I think you your question um, indicated this so beautifully. The book moves back and forth between memoir, my own family, my investigations into my ancestors, um, and broader questions, more general questions um, that you know hopefully everyone can relate to. Um, and so, you know, um, in in sort of um, thinking about, you know, what the book was for me, there definitely was still a sort of way in which I was figuring out things about myself. But as you say, I came to the book, I mean, I was already in my 40s when I started writing it. Um, I had already had many years of therapy, many years of thinking very broadly and deeply about my family. Um, and so, you know, really what the book was ultimately, looking back, I can see, um, was a way of looking at my broader family, my ancestors, um, what they mean for me in terms of, you know, their, the positive and negative things they passed down and how that informs how I want to show up in the world, how I can be my best self in the world, um, and also how that connects to, um, you know, to our broader culture, to a lot of the questions that we're grappling with right now as we look at the legacies of, you know, the harms at the founding of this country. Um, I wanted to take a look at all of those things, both you know, for myself and also for fellow seekers who might be wondering how to deal with, um, you know, a genealogical situation where they have ancestors who engaged in the same kinds of harms. You quote um, Nanette Vonnegut, Kurt's daughter, um, at the beginning of the book, uh, at the root of a lot of art, uh, she wrote, is an injury that needs addressing. What was the injury for you? You're clearly not a racist. Your father was. You come from a deeply racist family. Most white people in the South uh, have share that genealogy. Um, how did that hurt you? Was it a sense of guilt, of responsibility? Well, so, you know, I, I, I love Nana Vonnegut's work and I love her father's work as well. And, um, and I definitely relate to that quote, although, you know, as you know, I wasn't necessarily using it in, in relation 
to my um, own life there in the way that the reviewer right. was. Although I definitely feel um, that it that it does connect. And so, you know, the thing about my family um, is that, so what led me to this book is a sort of twofold situation. You know, maybe there are three components really. So the first part is that I was raised by very extreme parents who agreed with each other about almost nothing except that they wanted to raise smart children. Um, you know, my mother was this sassy Texan woman who ultimately had an extreme religious conversion and started a holy roller church in our living room, casting out demons and that sort of thing. And on her side of the family, her father was said to have married 13 times. His father was said to have killed a man with a hay hook. And these seemed, you know, like incredibly improbable stories, but also, as I write in the book, not unlikely. Um, given yeah, and in, a, in an odd way, I mean, I'm not born in America. I mean, maybe it's not a typical American story, but it's not that unusual. I mean, America was and in some ways still is a crazy place. There is a lot of extremism here. And yeah, and so I was interested in finding out if that was true and also finding out, um, you know, what else I could discover and sort of thinking about how, how all of that related to the broader culture. You know, and then on my father's side, there was this much heavier, more difficult kind of history. You know, I experienced my mother's side despite the over-the-top stories as kind of fun and exciting and my father's side as much more oppressive. And so when I started digging in there, you know, there was both this difficult childhood that I had, this difficult history, even as an adult with both of my parents. Um, and then also this desire to sort of look back and look back and look back and understand, you know, why they turned out to be the way they were and why my ancestors, did the things that they did. And so it, it became, you know, the more layers I peeled back on the investigative onion, the, you know, the, the deeper I kept going, really. For better or worse, your, your father has stolen some of the headlines uh, of the book. You knew he would. I mean, you're going to write about him in Ancestor Trouble. You don't speak to him. When did you stop speaking to him? Uh, we stopped speaking about 20 years ago. Um, I write about this in the book. And um, I was actually in Miami the last time that we spent time together outside of uh, his parents' funerals. Hopefully not and on the beach, right? <laughs> um, the, the last protracted amount of time we spent together was a Christmas Eve, actually. And um, he and my partner, my husband and I, um, and uh, one of his girlfriends were driving up um, to her family's place a little north of Miami, and we were going to have Christmas Eve dinner there. And I, I describe the whole situation in much more detail in the book, but essentially- Yeah, and don't give everything away. We want everyone, many of our viewers and- <laughs> Listeners more will have will have already 
bought and read the book, but we want to make sure everyone listening buys it. So don't give away all the secrets of the book. Sure. Um, let's just say there was an incredibly over-the-top car ride where I was sort of um, expected to keep a lot of deep and complex untruths to myself. Um, this woman had been strung along for many years with a series of lives and was actually interrogating me in the car um, about these very questions that my father had assured me would not come up. And, and, you know, I think it was actually that my partner was there in the car, to be honest. Um, the rest of it was not that far afield from things that I had dealt with in my childhood. But somehow the idea that my husband was also being um, roped into this environment, this sort of pattern, um, really you know, that, that was the final straw for me. And so I took a little bit of time away and, you know, um, made a, a small attempt to repair things. And let's just say that it did not go well. And, and so, you know, I certainly wish him well. Um, you know, I have worked through my anger toward him. It, it rarely flares up now. Um, you know, but I definitely don't foresee having him in my life. Was it odd writing a book about uh, a father who isn't in your life, who you don't speak to? So it's a kind of a, a weird missing hole in the middle of the book. I would say no. Um, it really, it really wasn't that weird. Um, so was it sort of cathartic in a way, a way of getting it yeah, sure. A way of finally kind of making sense of the whole thing from start to finish. Um, yeah. And again, you know, if I had written this when I was younger, um, I'm sure this would have been a very different, much more axe grinding kind of book. But that was definitely not my intention in, in writing the book that I wrote. The more conversations I have with memoirists like yourself, the more I find that it's not that unusual for children to, so to speak, divorce their parents. Have you met a lot of other kids who have chosen not to speak to their parents? I have, actually. Um, you know, I, I think to some extent, New York City attracts us. Um, it's a place where a lot of people find their own family. Um, you know, I, I, I am still in touch with, with a lot of my biological family, but, um, you know, I definitely have a different kind of community here. I agree that maybe people who had difficult experiences and are driven to write about them or explore them in art, um, you know, which is kind of a weird thing in our culture a little bit, or unusual at least. I agree that, that those people may be more likely um, to, to have a break with family when they encounter a sort of toxicity that, that doesn't serve their lives. The subtitle of the book, as I said, is A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. You don't expect to reconcile with your father, though. No, I, I definitely do not. Um, the reconciliation piece of the book for me was about reconciling myself um, to the truth of my ancestors, um, you know, to the truth 
of, of who they were and what they did. And, you know, um, in addition to all the other things we've discussed, there's a definite history of mental illness on my mother's side, and there's a lot of other stuff going on. And so, you know, in accepting, um, you know, these realities, these truths, you know, as I said earlier, I've really found that I've been able to figure out exactly how I want to live my life now with increasing clarity. In a way, the book is also a, a sociology or a sociological investigation of the roots of racism. Racism, unfortunately, hasn't died. In some ways, it's reappeared in the America of Donald Trump in the 2020s. Um, what did your book... What did you learn from your book, from your investigation into your ancestors about, if you like, the genealogy of racism? And obviously, I mean, take we, we it goes without saying that uh, we want to get rid of it. It's bad. There's no. It has no upside, no benefits at all. Absolutely. You know I, what you were saying um, about how this underlying sort of white supremacist ideology bubbled up during the Trump years is so true. You know, I wrote the piece that the book came from uh, for Harper's in 2014. And, you know, I really wasn't sure, um, you know, how many people would be interested in looking at these kinds of issues, um, you know, and then when Trump was elected, uh, I think a lot of people realized that this was, you know, a much sort of deeper and broader underlying issue still in our culture um, than maybe they had had realized previously. Um, yeah, and so, you know, in, in sort of looking at, um, you know, at my ancestors, one thing that really stood out for me, you know, uh, in writing the book ultimately was that I had sort of unthinkingly divided my, my ancestors into the racist side, quote unquote, which was my father's side, and then the not racist side or not fundamentally racist side, which was my mother's side um, in this sort of low level unconscious way of looking at things. And then I found that I had ancestors on my mother's side um, who had also enslaved people. And so, you know, that's probably not very surprising to your listeners, uh, but it was surprising to me. I had thought that my mother's mother's family um, was very poor, that they, you know, maybe had immigrated in the middle of the 1800s. You know, I, I had a very specific set of preconceptions about um, their lives here in this country. And so when I discovered that, it was a gut punch, frankly, but it was a, a really critical and enlightening one because, um, you know, I think a lot of us, you know, when we when we look at our families, we don't want to see these histories, especially in connection with the people we love the most. But, you know, we, we really do need to see and acknowledge those histories in order to participate in, in the kind of repair 
that we need as a country. The book is focused on genealogy on lots of different levels, and you acknowledge that we all, for better or worse, inherit stuff, stuff we want and sometimes we don't want. Did you find in the writing of the book you discovered that you inherited uh, qualities, or maybe that's the wrong word, features that you're ashamed of, that part of the reckoning and reconciliation is, is with yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that was definitely, to, to the extent that the book was in some sense a project, um, you know, as you, as you said earlier, toward finding myself or self-improvement or, you know, the kinds of things that, that are often um, associated with memoirists, I think that that piece of it was very important to me. Um, you know, figuring out how, in light of these histories, um, you know, that, that I, you know, sort of carry forward as a, a living continuation of my family, um, you know, how, what I wanted to emphasize, what I wanted to de-emphasize um, in my own life, um, you know, and, and by that I don't mean um, what I want to be truthful about, because I, I want to be truthful about everything. Um, but what I want to spend the rest of my years um, on this planet in this form, you know, thinking about and working toward. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of different legacies. Um, and I, you know, in the book, I get into questions of genetics, questions of epigenetics and uh, intergenerational trauma and a lot of issues that so many of us are thinking about now. And I don't really land, you know, um, firmly on the idea that everything is nurture or everything is nature. I think it's a combination of the two. But, you know, within that reality, there are decisions that we can make about how we want to live. Maud, when does the personal end and the political begin? Or is the personal always political? The political always personal? They're mixed up here because this is a book in a way about politics or the politics of race and of racism and of identity. But it's a very personal book. Um, do you feel that there are moments when we just need to give up our own personal narratives. We all have them and, and move on to broader political projects and issues that don't have personal uh, connections, that don't reflect us as individuals. Well, that's an interesting question. And there may be circumstances in which that is appropriate. Um, but, you know, I would say in this moment in our culture, it has become increasingly clear to me, even as the book was gearing up for publication and, and in the you know, months since its publication, um, that, that the opposite is to some degree true. You know, we find ourselves in this country, um, you know, facing these laws that are now prohibiting teachers and even sometimes um, businesses, you know, uh, from from discussing factual history, um, you know, because it's being classified as 
uh, quote, critical race theory, which I guess means the, the history of slavery um, and its, you know, its continuing effects um, in our culture, you know, that, that's essentially what it means, you know, and then there's this sort of broader casting of, um, you know, discussions around queerness and all of that as sort of indoctrination. And so one thing that those of us with histories like mine, family histories like mine can do is rather than um, fretting and feeling that, there, that we have no recourse, you know, or angrily lecturing our neighbors who are averse to recognizing the continuing effects of slavery, we can come forward in a really open-hearted way and say, hey, you know, actually my ancestors enslaved people. You know, my ancestors enslaved a lot of Black people. And that really wasn't that long ago. It's just a little bit more than three of my lifetimes ago. And here's how I feel about that. And, and here are some of my thoughts about, you know, the obligations that I might have as a person or, you know, me as a, as a society um, might have for the fact that Black people built so much of this country while in bondage. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, everyone is going to be receptive to that message, but I think that making these stories personal has a much greater chance of, you know, moving people who are resistant but not completely unreceptive uh, to these kinds of, you know, investigations. Whereas, you know, yelling at people, um, you know, who are kind of in the middle and unsure about these kinds of questions is, is probably less likely to motivate them to see the kinds of change that we need. Yeah, I don't suppose everyone in Florida is going to be thrilled with this book. I can't imagine uh, Ron DeSantis, for example, having ancestor trouble uh, on his, uh, he's got ancestor trouble of his own, but not the book on his uh, bedside table. So in a way, it's a kind of polemic. And I was amused. We did a show more than um, a couple of weeks ago called uh, with uh, Natasha Lance Rogoff. Uh, she has a new book out, Muppets in Moscow. It's a book about her attempt to create a, a Muppet show in Russia in the uh, you know, after the breakup of the Soviet Union. The Muppets feature in your book too, don't they? Yes, um, I was forbidden to watch Sesame Street as a child uh, because black and white children played together on the show. And my father's racism was so extreme that he actually covered over black children and children of color in my storybooks with my mom's nail polish, or he cut them out um, he was an ardent segregationist. And so, yeah, I, you know, I was allowed to watch it. And then suddenly uh, my father found out and permission was revoked. And, you know, occasionally my mom let me watch it anyway. But most of the time I had to pretend on the playground that I knew what my classmates were talking about when you know, Oscar the Grouch did this, or this happened on the electric company, or, you know, I have very, very vivid memories of 
being in the playground of my church nursery school uh, with my friends when I was three or four and, and pretending that I knew what they were talking about. Maybe you should have watched it in Russian then. I don't suppose your father knew Russian. Uh, I'm curious, Maud, um, you're doing very well as a writer, but you began as a blogger. You're on Twitter. You've got 186,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, you've got your own Substack. Uh, you call that appropriately enough Ancestor Trouble. You've got this new book out that's been wonderfully reviewed. Um, what advice would you give aspiring memoirists who, who have an interesting story of their own to tell? You invented yourself as a writer. You began blogging at the beginning of the blogging revolution. Uh, what's been your experience in terms of a, a self-created writer and voice? Yeah, I would say that, you know, blogging was a completely open world when I started. There were no rules. Um, and what so, year did you start? Was it about 2004? 2002. Wow. So you and were really early. Like, you know, I had been on bulletin board systems and I even had my own website. Um, going back into the 90s, but I didn't do anything with it, really. Um, so, yeah, I, I would encourage writers to just not feel constrained by the realities of the industry, but see where the energy is, uh, you know, for writing, and take their writing there and try to build a community and and maybe it's in you know um someone's community online um you know maybe it's at substack maybe it's at medium probably there are amazing things happening that i don't even know about uh, i know there's a return to printed zines you know um and historically those have been really important um, for writers, you know, looking to establish a readership and get practice writing. And so I would just say for me, um, you know, not really seeing a way into publishing um, and not really knowing if I would ever have the opportunity to write a book, just sort of doing exactly what I wanted um, was really important, writing about exactly what I was interested in and sort of telling family stories and talking about books and politics on a weblog, you know, even back when people thought that was a slightly crazy thing to do. Your book has been embraced by the commanding heights of old media, big media, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR. They've all loved the book. <laughs> So you've, you've gone the traditional route too. Do you find though that Twitter and Substack, are they useful ways of putting the message out and, and indeed selling books? Are you finding the books that are doing very well? Um, I assume the publisher is happy, but do you think people still buy books because of a good review in the New York Times? Um, or is it uh, your, your book, uh, Got, got a wonderful review, a, a sweeping genealogical investigation that becomes an investigation of genealogy itself, actually by Kerry Arsenault, who's an old friend who's been on the show a couple of times. Um, or, or, or do you think there's a way now of selling books through platforms like Substack and Twitter? 
Yeah, such a great question. And I would also encourage everyone to read Carrie's book. It's, it's such yeah, a- Yeah, it's a wonderful book. And in a way, I was thinking actually before our conversation, in a way, it's not that different from yours. There's a, there are many, many common interests at, at the core of our books, and, and I have so much respect for her um, as a writer and thinker. Um, you know, well, it's interesting that you should ask about, about Twitter at the moment because, yeah, because um, yeah. I'm actually really, you know, I've been decreasing my presence there um, over the past few years. Um, you know, because of all the disinformation and, you know, participating in that, in those platforms, you know, it's, it can be necessary for a writer. And I'm not saying that I'm leaving them behind altogether, but I'm just trying to, to really be there, um, you know, less and less. And, and with Elon Musk taking over, I, yeah. you know, it's hard to stomach really being there much at all, honestly. But I do think that historically Twitter was very important. Um, Instagram, you know, for some writers has been very important. Facebook, of course. Now TikTok with Book Talk is huge. Um, you know, my book hasn't, you know, uh, caught on with the Book Talk crowd, and, and that's completely fine. I think every book. Um, finds its own audience, its own readership. But, you know, I think that, that the place, the energy around learning about books is constantly shifting. Um, Substack is obviously very popular right now. Um, it's, it's a good, well-run platform. That's an easy way to reach a lot of people. Um, are, you, are you giving your stuff out for free on Substack or are you getting subscribed? I have I have a day job and so you know I'm I'm comfortable um, putting that that stuff out freely um, you know that that could change if I ever I'm in a situation where I don't have a job but you know a lot of writers I know are um, you know supplementing their income with their substacks um, so all of that is helpful. But at the same time, I do think there is still, you know, I mean, the New York Times is the New York Times and NPR is NPR, the Washington Post, all the different, um, you know, media organizations that you mentioned, they all still have their devoted followings, you know, um, that I was amazed by the response to that New York Times magazine piece that you started with about y'all. Um, I have written for the Times Magazine in the past. I used to write for them regularly. And um, I had sort of forgotten how people just come out of the woodwork when, when you write for them. And so, um, you know, the number of just sort of random emails from readers was, was really sweet. Uh, so, I, so I think it's a combination of everything in our decentralized media environment. And in a way, that's good news for writers because we can really decide for ourselves, um, you know, where we feel comfortable writing, where we feel comfortable spreading the word about our work and finding a community. You've been very generous with your time, Moira. So, so we probably need to end now. But final question easy question 
to end with, as all my final questions are. You're the author of Ancestor Trouble. We did a book last year, another book with Ancestor in the title, with uh, uh, the Anglo-Australian philosopher Roman Krasnarich. Um, and it's a book about how to be remembered as a good ancestor. His book is called The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. So it's kind of looking into the future. It's just the reverse of yours, whereas your book is about the past. His is about the future. As I said, an easy question more to end on. What for you is a, a good ancestor? Have you learned to be a good ancestor? And, and if not, how, how does one become a good ancestor? Yeah, well, so toward the end of my book, um, you know, the book increasingly takes a psychological and then even spiritual turn. And so my sense is that in looking at the past, in being honest about the past, in doing that kind of work for ourselves that I mentioned about using the past to decide how we want to live in the present, to me, that's part of, you know, what will make us be good ancestors, uh, you know, having a better understanding of how, how we want to show up now. Well, I wish I could be there on the 20th for your return as an ancestor to come back to Miami. It's going to be spectacular. I strongly suggest everyone to try and make it to Miami if they can't certainly watch online. Congratulations again. Um, uh, more on, on all your success on on every platform it seems you're 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 enormously successful um and particularly congratulations on this wonderful new book uh, ancestor trouble uh which has been so um so embraced by the critics i think it's going to win a number of prizes this year uh what else are you reading what other books would you suggest our viewers and listeners read um in addition to yours of course there are so many great books. I'm going to suggest three by authors who are also, at, well, four by authors who are also at the festival. Really, yeah, And we add uh, Kerry uh, Arsenal. I don't think, I'm not sure if she's going to Miami, but her book on, uh, what, what, uh, what, what's her book? I forgot what it's called. Actually. It, ha it is um, the Mill, um, mm, I, yeah. I'm embarrassed to say that I, yeah. I don't remember the title. But I do love it. I genuinely love it. And continue talking and I'm going to look it up. I'm going to use okay. the internet and cheat. Okay. Go on. I, I kind of want to turn around, but I, I think it might actually be in uh, my You talk mind. and I'll look. Go on. Okay. So, so three books. Um, one is Olga Dies Dreaming by Zoshi Gonzalez. She is going to be there at the book fair. It's a fantastic book. It's um, a multi-generational Brooklyn saga. I'll keep it short. Everyone will love it. It's it's just wonderful. Um, Donnie Shapiro, best known for Inheritance, her um, most recent novel, uh, Signal Fires, is out, and it's really lovely. Like Olga Dies Dreaming, it's a super propulsive read. And then the two writers... Um, who are going to be on the panel with me are truly, their books are really great. Um, Ada Calhoun, and then also Rebecca Donner, um, who, who wrote a book called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days last year that won so many prizes. It's, it's such a 
a miraculous book that I fear we don't have time to discuss in detail. Well, maybe another time. And Kerry Arsenal's book, by the way, is Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains. So it's very much a, yes. an excellent uh, sort of, I guess, compliment or twin with your book, Ancestor Trouble, uh, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. I'm honored you would discuss us in the same category.